Back in school, I remember, you may as well, reading a Jack London story for one of our classes. It was called To Build a Fire. Any of you read that, possibly? It's a short story about a man who's in the deep woods. He's in the cold. He's freezing. He's in a very life-threatening situation. And whose last hope is to use his matches to start a fire. So he goes through one by one. His fumbling hands, they're cold and freezing. And one by one, the matches break. And he can't start the fire. Finally, on the last match, he manages to get the paper and the kindling lit. And the flames roar to life. And he's starting to warm his hands. And as Jack London's very morbid sense of drama would have it, the story ends with a bunch of snow that was overhanging on a tree limb, melts and falls and extinguishes the fire, and that's the end of the story. Kind of morbid. The point was that he needed the fire to survive, and obviously he didn't survive. When my family and I were living in Northern California, we'd often go over Donner Pass. Some of you are familiar with that if you have lived out there. It is a famous place between Sacramento and Reno. It's the site of an incident that happened back in 1846. A group of settlers were attempting to cross the pass, the Donner Party, And there is a monument at the pass to mark where the snow was that winter. And apparently the snowfall was about 22 feet high. 22 feet high. They almost made it. They almost got over the pass. They needed about one more day of good weather. Unfortunately, they got socked in. They had to retreat a little bit. And they had to stay in the mountains all winter long. The cold and the exposure and the freezing conditions claimed 41 people's lives out of the 87 in the whole party. The point is, there are times when getting a fire started is a matter of life and death. It's not just a luxury. It's not for ambience, you know, which often it is today in many places, but it's a matter of life and death. You know, even in a warm climate like we have here in Charlotte, in the wintertime, if we don't have heat, if you don't have gas or electric heat of some kind, having cool weather, you know, it doesn't take that much exposure to cold and wet weather for the core body temperature to drop. And we're in very serious situations. Brethren, how necessary is fire for survival? You know, in our modern world, it seems less and less important, especially if you live in the South. But it is a truly a necessity, heat. What about spiritually? What about spiritually? I'd like to talk about that today. Do we need to be on fire spiritually? And if so, how? I'd like to go back to the book of Exodus to start off, if you don't mind. Exodus chapter 27. I guess if you do mind, we're going to go there anyway, but, you know. 
Exodus chapter 27, we find some interesting things about being on fire. Are you on fire? Am I on fire? Does it matter, spiritually speaking? Exodus 27, verse 20, I'll read from the NIV. Uh, This is in the tabernacle. It's talking about the instructions for the daily ministration of the tabernacle. He said, Command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the light, so that the lamps may be kept burning. In the tent of meeting, outside the curtain that is in the front of the testimony, Aaron and his sons are to keep the lamps burning before the Lord from evening until morning. This is to be a lasting ordinance among the Israelites for the generations to come. They had lamps. They were to be filled with oil. And the job of the sons of Aaron was to tend those lamps, make sure they were ignited, make sure they were lit and on fire. Notice in Exodus chapter 30 and verse 6. There's another Note here, as the priests would trim the lamps, they'd burn something else too. Exodus chapter 30 and verse verse 6. It says, Put the altar in front of the curtain that is before the ark of the testimony, before the atonement cover that is over the testimony where I will meet with you. Aaron must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. He must burn incense again when he lights the lamps at twilight, So incense will burn regularly before the Lord for generations to come. So what do we see? The lamps being tended evening and morning, and incense also being burnt evening and morning. Physical manifestations or or symbols of powerful spiritual lessons. The Holy Spirit, of course, that's the oil on fire ignited. And the incense also on fire. Both were to be tended every day. Let's look at how this applies in the New Testament. Notice in Matthew chapter 25. Is there something that we are to be doing every single day? To be on fire spiritually. Is there something, some lesson that we can draw on from what the priests were to be doing in the tabernacle. We read Matthew 25 often, and it's a familiar passage. Let's go there. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 1. It says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Of course, the lesson we usually draw from here is to keep your lamps full, right? To have plenty of oil in the lamps so it doesn't run out. But notice in verse 5, there's another lesson as well. But while the bridegroom was delayed, and they all slumbered and slept, and at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. For our lamps are going out. Now, why were the lamps going out? This is a very simple question and very basic answer. 
The lamps were going out because the oil was burning, the flame was burning up the oil, right? See, I told you it would be easy. In a, in a lamp, the oil is the fuel, the flame burns the oil. So eventually, the lamp will go out. The point is, the warning is to have enough oil in reserve, but also, there's an implicit statement that the oil was on fire. What good, think about it, do any of you have hurricane lamps, emergency lamps, oil lamps in your house? If you had an emergency situation, what good would the lamp do unless you lit it? Would it give any light? Would it do any good? Of course not. The oil is on fire. Notice in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 3. Revelation chapter 8 and verse 3. The warning is not just to have enough oil, but also to make sure it's burning, that it's ignited. Revelation chapter 8 and verse 3, we find another reference to what we read in Exodus. Revelation chapter 8 and verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hands. So the incense that we read about in Exodus, it wasn't just beat finely, it wasn't just crushed, it was burned, wasn't it? It was ignited. And it wouldn't produce smoke, it wouldn't produce aroma unless it was ignited. Brethren, what is this telling us? You know, we often talk about being on fire for the work, having the fire in our belly. But where does it start? How can we be on fire spiritually? You know, it sounds like from these it has something to do with the oil and the incense being ignited and tended day and night. Are we tending our lamps day and night? Evening and morning. Well, what do we do in the evening and morning? We pray. Prayer. Let's talk about fire today. You know, fire has some amazing qualities. The first thing is fire produces heat, right? That's no pretty, pretty basic um, statement. Um, the Donner Party needed heat in the Sierras. The man in the story... To build a fire needed heat, didn't get it. We need heat spiritually. Are we generating any spiritual heat? Notice in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12. Are we on fire? If we are on fire, then we'll be generating spiritual heat. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12. Epaphras he says, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Heropolis. Isn't this interesting? Epaphras, a man in, listed in the Bible, was known for laboring fervently in prayer. Think about it. This man was... His name, his example has been immortalized for thousands of years now. 
He was laboring in prayer. And his love and warmth for brethren has become an example that we can read of today. Are we on fire? You know, if we are on fire spiritually, we'll have love and warmth for each other. If we want more warmth for one another, where does it start? Does it start in personality training? Psychoanalysis? Or does it start in praying for one another? How do we how do we generate heat? How do we generate love and warmth and and that kind of spirit in a congregation? Well, it starts when we're tending the lamps morning and evening. Brethren, are are our lamps lit? Are they on fire? Notice in 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. It says, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Ever notice how when we start to drift spiritually... We start to not be as close to God spiritually. We start picking at each other, you know, especially those who are closest to us. Why is that? Well, we don't have the, the, the warmth that we need. On the other hand, when we're really close to God, which starts in our private time, which starts in making sure the lamp is lit and it's on fire, and even building up that fire, you ever notice how we don't get our feelings hurt quite so easily by our mates, by those we're close to? We don't tend to snap back at each other as much. Love for each other. We need to produce that. Notice in Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, Christ prophesied that in the end time, love would be waxing cold. And it would be an uphill battle to maintain warmth that we need, spiritual warmth for one another. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 12. It says, And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Are we praying from the heart? Are we pouring out our hearts like Mr. Armstrong used to say? Or are our prayers ho-hum? Have they fallen into a ritual? Have they fallen into just repeating the same thing over and over? If they do, you know, our love will grow cold. We won't have the same warmth. We won't have the same concern and care for one another. Because the fire will start to go down. Fire produces heat. What else does fire produce? Well, fire produces light. Light. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14. Notice Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14. We read about not putting our light under a bushel. It says, You are the light of the world. The city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We are supposed to produce light. But where does light come from? Well, it comes from fire, right? That's another byproduct of fire. What good, again, is a unlit candle in a room, in a darkened room? It doesn't produce any light. What good is a lamp with oil in it that's not burning? It doesn't produce any light. And yet we are supposed to produce light. God's Spirit is the lamp. But how bright is it burning in us? How much is it projecting light out of us? Is the light starting to flicker? Or even about to go out? Or is it a strong flame? You know, some years ago, this concept was ridiculed of shining our light. It was said in the church that years ago, we were so busy shining our light at each other, we were blinding one another. Well, you know, I mean, it's, I suppose that can happen, but we're not here to blind one another with our lights. We're here to help each other to spur each other, to be good examples. Notice Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22. How much of a light are we? The Holy Spirit, using the Holy Spirit, making sure it's on fire, making sure it's ignited, is critical to shining our light, to having heat and warmth, to having light. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22. It says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Notice the language. He's talking about stirring up something especially as the time draws near and not uh, forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. But where does that stirring up start? Where does the stirring up so that we can, we, we can be good examples, we can help each other be good examples, where does that start? When we tend the lamps. When we go to God in the morning and in the evening and we get right with Him and we pour out our hearts to Him. And we ask him to help us to be the lights that we need to be, right? When we're on fire, brethren, when we are on fire, when the Spirit is moving in us and changing us, helping us to make the right decisions, then we are positive examples to one another. And, you know, we have no idea, do we, how just doing the right thing day in and day out helps another person to be strong, and to do the right thing as well. Ever notice that? When you're a little discouraged and a little down, when you see someone else who is plugging away and keeps going, it gives us strength to keep going as well. Where does that come from? Where does it start? It starts when we're keeping our lights, our lamps lit in prayer. Are we pouring out our hearts to God in prayer? 
What are our prayers like? Are they sleepy time prayers? Are we falling asleep in our prayers? Are they boring to us? You know, if they're boring to us, how effective are they going to be in really stirring up the spirit, brethren? How effective are they going to be in in generating warmth and generating light? I like to go camping, and it's fun to make have a campfire. And I think the example of a campfire is interesting. If someone is lost in the woods, think about it. If you're lost in the dark woods at night, don't know where to go, and you see a light in the distance, it may just be a tiny flicker, but a campfire in the distance, across the lake or in the trees, it's a wonderful sight, isn't it? It's a beacon. It's a sign of hope. You know, we, we can be that kind of beacon for someone who may be lost and who needs a symbol of hope. We have no idea. Sometimes years can go by, and someone can come up and say, You know, I just want to tell you how what you said back then, back in year such and such, or what you did, was so encouraging to me. Has that ever happened to you? But for it to shine bright, the oil must be igniting. Are we igniting the oil? Are we on fire? You know, the light produced by a fire is not just for others, though. It's also for ourselves. Think back to a campfire. You know, you you can build a tiny little campfire, and it will burn and cast light. But if you build it up, if you get it roaring, if you add more fuel, what happens? The light penetrates the darkness, right? The shadows start to fade. You can start seeing your way better into the woods. Think about this in our own lives. Do we ever feel like our pathway is a little murky? We're trying to make a decision, and it's a little bit difficult, and we don't know exactly how to go. Maybe you have decisions in your life right now that are difficult, and it's difficult to see which way to go. You know, a remarkable remedy to lighten our way is in prayer, getting close to God, getting on fire for God, pouring out our hearts to Him, really seeking Him with all our hearts. Maybe the road is not clear because we haven't really thrown our energy into asking Him fervently enough. Notice in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 35. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 35. Are we on fire for God? How do we get on fire for God? It really begins in our personal relationship with Him. It really begins when no one else is watching, right? It doesn't start here, it doesn't start on the Sabbath. It starts day in and day out when we get up out of bed and our feet hit the floor. What do we do? Do we rush off, start our day? Or do we focus? Do we ask God to, to, to guide us, to direct us, to help us to get focused on what's really important in our lives in that day? 
How do we have warmth? How do we have light to light our way? Only by tending the lamps in the morning. Making sure there's a flame. Just like those priests. That Christ gave an answer here in a situation where he was asked a question. The question wasn't really sincere. But he used it as an opportunity to explain the most important law in the whole universe. Sometimes, perhaps, when we don't know which way to turn, we don't know how to make a decision. Is it because we're not really putting God above all else, brethren? Is it because we're not really on fire so we can't see our way clearly? Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? He just wanted to tangle up in it in his words, but Christ turned it around and used it as an opportunity to explain the most significant, in one sense, the most significant law in the whole universe, the greatest commandment. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Let's just read it again. Now that, now that you're all there, Matthew chapter 22. After the, law, the lawyer had tempted him, he said, What is the great commandment? What is the first thing we should focus on in our life and every day? If we want the power of the Holy Spirit that we talk about during the time of Pentecost... Not just as a receptacle of the Holy Spirit, but we want the Holy Spirit burning and moving in our life. What do we do? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. Brethren, is that talking about focus? Is that talking about getting our our focus aligned and making sure that we're not just a storehouse of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is moving and is burning and is on fire within us. It's the fuel. But it has to be ignited. Are we igniting it? Are we making sure it's burning? Are we tending the fire every day? Where does it start? In our prayers. Nobody checking up on us. We don't have to give a like a practice report. You know, if you take piano lessons, you've got to tell your teacher whether you practiced every day. We don't have to hand that in about our prayers, right? Nobody checks up on us. And yet, if we want warmth spiritually... If we want light spiritually, we've got to be tending the fire. How is your prayer life? How is my prayer life? Is it producing the kind of results that we want and that we need and that are a matter of life and death? Second Samuel 22 and verse 29, we read, you are my lamp, O Lord. You shall, the Lord shall enlighten my darkness. If we need more light, if we need more light 
If we need more direction in our life, are we tending the fire that will provide more light? Number three, the third thing that fire produces, power. Power. We understand this. We know how combustion engines work. Gas is injected into the chamber. It's ignited because of the nature of the fuel. It expands rapidly. That's another way of saying it explodes and it moves the piston, drives the engine, moves the car, right? Same thing with a steam engine. The burning fuel generates heat. The water heats up. The water turns into steam. Steam has a tremendous power behind it. The steam moves a piston, and it produces force. It's really quite amazing when you think of how different substances, when they're heated, they produce force. Brethren, is God's Spirit producing power and force in our lives? Are you experiencing the spiritual power that you need and would like to have? When I was a teenager, I remember thinking about inventing the perpetual motion machine. You know, have you ever heard of the, a, a perpetual motion machine? I think men have been seeking for it for a long time. Everyone is tries to a physicist and and uh, uh, tries to invent something that would 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 have output without input. You'd be very rich if you could figure out a way to produce a perpetual motion machine. I tried to think of how it would work, and, I, you know, wouldn't that be great to be the guy who invented that? It's impossible. It doesn't follow the laws of physics. You don't get output without input, without fuel, without something driving the machine. But isn't it true sometimes? Spiritually, now, let's apply this to spiritual lives. Sometimes we deceive ourselves into thinking we can get spiritual output without spiritual effort, right? We can coast, and, we, and then we're surprised that we don't have the same spiritual power when we're not generating any force. Maybe sometimes when we don't have the power we need in our lives, maybe we're not igniting the fuel. Notice in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1. Are you a warehouse for the Holy Spirit or are you a factory for the Holy Spirit? If I may use the analogy. Is it producing something or are we just storing it? Is it moving us? Is it changing us? 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day. Interesting that Paul started this discussion off with what he was doing in his private time, right? He was explaining how in his prayers he was talking to God about Timothy and how Timothy could have more power spiritually and more focus and more encouragement and more help. He connects it to what 
He was doing in, in, in private. Verse 4, Greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I might be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The Holy Spirit, through baptism, through laying on of hands. Stir up. The literal Bible here says, fan the flame. Literally, the Bible, the, the, the word means to rekindle. In other words, Paul was saying, Timothy, you have the Spirit. Stir it up. Make sure it's burning brightly. Make sure you put enough fuel on the fire. Get it roaring. And then what does that produce? Verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Do you feel spiritual power in your life? Or do you feel powerless? You know, one of the most frustrating feelings of a human being is powerlessness. When we feel we're overwhelmed by something we just can't control and we can't do anything about it. We get frustrated. We can get angry. We can get depressed. It affects our relationships. But brethren, think about this. When you and I feel powerless, when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel we're going to drown by situations around us, we can't take it anymore, right? When we feel powerless, no matter what situation we're in, think about the irony. We feel powerless, and yet at our fingertips is a power that, if ignited, is more explosive than gasoline, more powerful than steam, more powerful than nuclear power. It's the very power that God used to create the entire universe. Now, granted, we don't have full access to that power yet, right? And we may not always be able to change a situation or totally fix a problem. We might be stuck in a problem one way or the other. But we don't have to be powerless. There are things that we can change about ourselves, right? About how we respond to the situation. Again, the key is prayer. Are we igniting the fire, fanning the flame, getting the boiler room really running? If we get close to God, if we recommit to Him, if we pour out our hearts to Him, and our needs and our problems, and redouble, redouble our efforts to really obey Him completely and wholly with everything we've got, what happens to our personal problems? They start not to seem as big, don't they? When we really are focused, we start having the power to overcome them. Suddenly we're able to Control our pride better, our ego, our tongue. Notice in James chapter 3 and verse 1. James chapter 3 and verse 1. Talk about having power. You know, we, we need power to control our tongue, right? 
It's a little member, but look what James says about it. James chapter 3 and verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. How hard is it to control the tongue, right? Our words, our mouth. See how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on course the, on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell, for every kind of beast and burden of reptile and creature the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. Now think about it. The only, what can tame the tongue? Using God's Spirit, right? Have you seen that in your life? When we are really close to God, when we really are on fire, when we really are, 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 are intent about doing His will, submitting to His way, suddenly we are able to control our responses, control the tongue. What kind of power is in our fingertips? to even rule over the carnal spirit, to change ourselves. Amazing. But we have to go to God every day and tend the lamps in order to use that power. Oftentimes we're trying to rule our spirit without God's help, without His power. And you know, that's pretty hard, isn't it? Try to control the tongue and rule the carnal spirit without God's help. It's kind of like some years ago at camp, they had an obstacle course. We had to had the chance to run through. And the last station was the group of us, 10 guys or 10 girls at different times, pushing a car up a hill together. That's pretty hard to do. And it was difficult. They gave the guys a bigger car than the girls. It was doable, but it was awfully hard. You know, as we were pushing that car, there was a perfectly good tank full of gas and a key, and all it had to be done is turn on, and it would have gone wonderfully, right, up the hill. Isn't that the way it is for us sometimes? When we are not really igniting God's Spirit, are we just trying to push the car on our own? That's what being on fire is all about. Being on fire helps us to have power to overcome ourselves. But we have to tend that lamp every day, every morning. Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 10. How are we doing on this? How are you doing on it? don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to answer. But in the privacy of your own mind, where are you? Do you have the warmth and the light and the power in your life that you'd like to have when it's at our fingertips 
Maybe it's just that we need to heat up the fire a bit. Proverbs 24 and verse 10. We need power to do the work. It says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Deliver those who are drawn to death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we didn't know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? In other words, this is our time to do the work, right? The responsibility is on our shoulders. And yet, how is the work done? Where do we get the power to accomplish the work today? Is it in this building? Is it, you know, in any department? Or is it when each one of us, every day of our lives, are on our knees asking for God to give us individually the power and collectively the power to go through the doors? Where do we get that? Are we just storing the Holy Spirit or are we using it? Is it on fire? Notice Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. The power is not our own. It's God's power, but we need to tap into it. We need to fan it into a flame. Make sure it's burning. Make sure it doesn't go out. What that means is going to God every morning, every evening, just like the priest did. Make sure it's tended. Make sure it's lit. Crying out to him. Getting emotional about it in our prayers being passionate, telling them what we need, telling them what we're struggling with. Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. He says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? But he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Lord has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power. When? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Brethren, we have the access to that power, don't we? But it is totally useless unless it's a flame, unless it's burning. That's the lesson of the tabernacle. It was supposed to do something. We need more power. Let's stir the flames a bit. What else does fire or being on fire do for us spiritually? Well, fire purifies. We know, and it's well known, that fire has purifying uh, qualities. You know, when a plague affects an area, things are burnt. Art art articles are burnt of clothing or uh, carcasses of animals to get rid of the contaminants. Even in terms of physical health, think about it. When we're sick, Our temperature rises often. The fever is doing what? It's burning. At least that's the way we understand it. It, it, It's burning the infection. Now, it can rise too high, and then it causes other problems. But we need a certain level of heat and temperature for our body processes to take place. What about exercise? What does exercise do? It raises our metabolism. It increases the efficiency of, of, of the body, uh, increases blood flow, oxygen intake. Uh, more oxygen means that our cells are, are more efficient. Uh, the cells are firing. Uh, the combustion, there, there's combustion in, at the cell level to produce energy, to remove toxins. Uh, 
And increased body temperature does all these things. That's what metabolism is all about. Notice in 2 Peter chapter 3, it's interesting that God says that he is going to use fire to purify the whole world, one way or the other. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. We can choose which way we're purified. You know, both are options. One is a whole lot more difficult and painful. Verse 10, he says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, seeing that there is going to be a fire that purifies the whole creation, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? In other words, are we allowing God's Spirit to purify us now? So we don't have to go through that purifying fire down the road. Verse 12, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. Therefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. Are we using God's Spirit to purify ourselves? Are we raising, so to speak, the, the metabolism, the, our spiritual uh, body temperature so that God can cleanse us, that God can purify us? Notice in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. Or are we just kind of bouncing along? Are we kind of compromising with a little habit here or a little, little habit there? We're not really allowing God to cleanse us, cleanse our minds, to purify us, to get out whatever doesn't fit, whatever corruption that we allow to, to creep in. We've got to raise the body temperature a little bit to purify Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that un denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. How does he do that? Through his Holy Spirit, right? Through his Holy Spirit. On fire. Zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you, he told Titus. The question is, are we allowing God to purify us? Again, where does that take place? On the Sabbath day? Or does it take place in our own private time with God? When we are alone with him and we talk to him and say, God, please clean me up. And we cry out to him for the help that we need to be cleaned up. 
what happens if we don't tend those lamps in the morning, in the evening? What happens as the days go by and we are kind of happenstance? Maybe we do, maybe we don't. We're not weeding out the things that need to be weeded out. The fire has to be burning. 1 Peter 1, I'll just read it. He says, Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. See the Holy Spirit? Key element in enabling us to become purified, just like Him. Unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. How this came about, the example of the Corinthians... You know the story how in the first letter Paul had to correct the Corinthians. The second letter, very interesting, their response. Second Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 4. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my glory of you. I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. For when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforts, comforts those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you, when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind towards me, so that I rejoiced the more. You know, the word fervent is none other than 2205, zealous. It, it has to do with zeal, that they were zealous for God. They were fervent in spirit. There was... There was real, genuine love between these people and, and Paul, even though he had corrected them. Notice verse 8. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle has made you sorry, though it but were for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world works death. For behold, this selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what revenge. In all these things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. What does the Holy Spirit do for us in our lives? It purifies us so that we can really change. We can really be different. But it has to be active. We have to be on fire for it to do that. Have we cooled down? Or is it active in our life? Are we really asking God to change us and purify us and correct us? in love, in gentleness, every morning, every evening. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 10. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 10. Are there things in your life that need to be burned up? Are there things in my life that need to be burned up? We constantly have to Ask God to cleanse us out, right? He says, 
1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 10, According to the grace of God which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it is shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Are we allowing God to purify us now so he doesn't have to destroy us with fire later? That's the point. If we cry out to him with all our hearts in prayer and we ignite the Spirit to get it moving, not just be a receptacle of the Spirit, that will happen. Let's look at Revelation chapter 3, because in light of using the Holy Spirit in an active way, it's interesting what he talks to the last eras of the church about. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. He says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, Philadelphia, of course, means what? The city of brotherly love. A people that are using God's Spirit, practicing warmth in their relationships, melting dividers between them, forgiving one another because the Spirit is active, because it's on fire, because they're on fire. These things says he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door and no man can shut it for you have a little strength. Notice the Philadelphian era also has power, right? A little power, but they have power. Where does that power come from? The Holy Spirit being fired up. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you have not denied his name. Brethren, how do we either deny his name or not deny his name? Well, by how we live every day, by the example we set every day, by the light we follow every day, right? Verse 10, Because you have kept the word of my patience, I will also keep you from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. There is a coming tribulation which is described as a fire to purify the wicked, at least it will be a, a type later on of the lake of fire. But because Philadelphians are willing to purify themselves, then they don't have to go through the tribulation. Brethren, do we have God's Spirit not only in us, but ignited, on fire, moving, producing heat and light and power, and purifying us. Notice verse 14, because there's another era, the last era, that is not doing those things. Verse 14, Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. We all know water in a kettle on a stove doesn't get hot by itself, right? 
There has to be energy applied to it. There has to be fire somewhere to make the water hot. What is that burner? Well, the burner is from God's Spirit. Are we ignited? Are we on fire? Verse 16, So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now let's think this through. You know, sometimes we might assume Laodiceans are people who are just kind of lazy. They're just kind of laid-back people. You know, they, they just don't get excited about anything, right? Is that what a Laodicean is? Well, or is the bigger problem really that they, they do get excited but about the wrong things? You know, a lot of people in the world have a deep passion about different things in their life. Making money, uh, you know, their job, status, whatever. And they have a tremendous zeal for that, but it's not directed in the right way. Hosea chapter 7 of verse 13 Remember Mr. Armstrong used to quote this often? The problem with Laodiceans is not that they lack zeal. It's they lack it in the right direction. Hosea chapter 7 and verse 13. What does it say? He says, Woe to them, for they have fled from me. Destruction to them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. They did not cry out to me with their heart when they wailed upon their beds. Now, you notice this is talking about someone that is making a lot of noise, right? Wailing, I think another translation says howling. There, there is something that this... Uh, individual is excited about. It's just not pouring out their hearts to God. I think the, the Living Bible says this, they lie there sleepless with anxiety, but they won't ask my help. In other words, people are busy and anxious about seeking after everything else than what's important. What about us, brethren? You know, I have a book by Stephen Covey. Most of you probably have, have seen this. Many of you have read it, I'm sure. Um, it's called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And Stephen Covey talks about the question of what is at the center of our lives. And he identifies a number of things that are at the center of most people's lives. What do they get excited about? What motivates them? He says on page 111, Each of us has a center though we usually don't recognize it as such. Neither do we recognize the all-encompassing effects of that center on every aspect of our lives. And then he talks about the different things that usually are at the center of most people in the world. One is possession-centeredness. A driving force of many people is possessions. Not only tangible material possessions such as fashionable clothes, homes, cars, boats, jewelry, but also the intangible possessions of fame, glory, or social prominence. In my, if my sense of security lies in my reputation or in the things I have, my life will be in a constant state of threat and jeopardy 
that these possessions may be lost or stolen or devalued. I am constantly trying to protect and ensure my assets, properties, securities, position, or reputation. In other words, that's the all-encompassing center of a person's life. You know, there can be tremendous zeal for all these things, but it doesn't mean it's Philadelphian zeal, right? What is at the center of our life, brethren? Is it using God's Spirit? Is it seeing Him in our lives and directing our lives according to His way? Or is it some of these other centers, which really aren't centers at all? Another one, he says, is pleasure-centeredness. Another common center closely allied with possessions is that of fun and pleasure. We live in a world where instant gratification is available and encouraged. Television, movies are major influences increasing people's expectations. Innocent pleasures in moderation can provide relaxation for the body and mind and can foster family and other relationships. But pleasure per se offers no deep, lasting satisfaction or sense of fulfillment. We know that, and yet how easy is it for pleasure to become the center that really drives us? We do other things, but just to get it over with so we can really have fun, do what we really want to do. Even in the church, the lure and excitement of pleasure-seeking, it's a powerful draw. If we're not careful, that can become our focus. Here's another one. He says there can be more hidden centers of our life, harder to see. Family-centeredness. Now, that sounds real good at the outset, but listen to what he has to say. Another common center is the family. If parents derive their own security from the family... Their need to be popular with their children may override the importance of a long-term investment in their children's growth and development. In other words, even the family is not the center, total center of our focus. What is the center? It's God, right? It's God. It's not even our family or our mate. Here he talks about spouse-centeredness. Marriage can be the most intimate, the most satisfying, the most enduring growth-producing of human relationships. It might seem natural and proper to be centered on one's husband or wife. If our sense of emotional worth, however, comes primarily from our marriage, then we become highly dependent upon that relationship. We become vulnerable to the moods and feelings, the behavior and treatment of our spouse or to any external event that may impinge on the relationship, a new child, in-laws, economic setbacks, social success, and so forth. In other words, if we build our total happiness on someone else providing our happiness, we're going to be disappointed, aren't we? His point is even good things, even right things, if, if we try to make them the center, they will disappoint us. What is our center, brethren? Is it really putting God first? Is it really seeking Him with all of our heart and all of our mind every day? Tending those lamps, making sure they're burning bright. Another center he talks about is friend or enemy-centeredness. He says, young people are particularly, though certainly not exclusively, susceptible to becoming friend-centered. Acceptance and belonging to a peer group can become almost supremely important. 
Friend-centeredness can also focus exclusively on one person. The emotional dependence on one individual, the escalating need conflict spiral, and the resulting negative interactions can grow out of friend-centeredness. What about putting an enemy at the center of one's life? Most people would never think of it and probably would never even do it consciously. Nevertheless, enemy centering is very common, he says, particularly when there is frequent interaction between people who are in real conflict. When someone feels he has been unjustly dealt with by an emotionally or socially significant person, it is very easy for him to become preoccupied with the injustice, injustice and make the other person the center of his life. We don't do these things consciously, but isn't it true that it's so easy for something other than God and seeking Him with all of our heart? It's so easy for something else to become our center, our core. Brethren, what is your core? What is at the center of your life? Is it seeking God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our being? What drives you? What are you most excited about? What are you on fire about? Do we seek God that way every morning and every evening? That's what the sons of Aaron were supposed to do. He says even being involved in a church can be a misplaced priority. Church-centeredness. He says, I believe that almost anyone who is seriously involved in any church will recognize that church-going is not synonymous with personal spirituality. There are some people who get so busy in church worship and projects that they become insensitive to the pressing human needs that surround them. In the church-centered life, image or appearance can become a person's dominant consideration, leading to hypocrisy that undermines personal security and intrinsic worth. Church-centered people often tend to live in compartments, acting and thinking and feeling in certain ways on the Sabbath and in totally different ways on weekdays. What is our center, brethren? Again, the problem with Laodiceans is not that they're not zealous, but they're zealous for the wrong thing. What are we zealous for? What really, really drives us? Is it the first and great commandment? And do we renew that every single day? Or is it something else? Verse 18 in Revelation 3 says, I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire. If we are not willing to let God's fire burn within us now and be fired up about what he has, we, there will is a different fire. That you may be rich in white raiment, that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness does not appear. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Zealous in itself just means to be hot, to boil, to glow, to be on fire. Are we on fire? Is the Holy Spirit burning in us? Or are we just storing it? First John chapter 3 and verse 2. You know, it's interesting. 
We are learning to be on fire right now, to be excited about what God is excited about, to be focused on what He is focused on, to put Him above all else, even relationships, to be on fire. You know, our destiny is to be on fire in other ways. Notice 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. He says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Our destiny is to be like God, to shine like the sun like God to be brilliant like God, to be glorified like God. Right now, we can't look at God in the physical flesh. We would be consumed. Remember when you were kids and your parents told you, don't look at the sun, right? Do not look. Whatever you do, don't look at the sun. And when you take a little peek, it's blinding, isn't it? And yet the Bible says that's what we're going to look like. If we're walking with him, if we're using that spirit, if it is ignited now, and if it's change in our life now. Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah chapter 33. Are we on fire? Is God's spirit creating height? heat and light and power and purity in our life now. That's the point. Isaiah chapter 33, this is kind of a parallel to Psalm 15, but adds a little different element. Isaiah 33 and verse 14, Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Our destiny is to dwell with God, to have the glory that He has. Verse 15, He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, He who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with His hands, refusing bribes, who stops His ears from hearing bloodshed and shuts His eyes from seeing evil. In other words, His focus is on doing whatever God says and changing His life to conform with God's way, right? He will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. Now we cannot look directly on God, right? But someday we will be able to, even though he is a devouring fire. Why? Because we will have his nature too. In the latest LCN, Mr. Meredith writes, It is vital that none of us think that we can dance along the edge of God's church and barely make it into God's kingdom by doing so. Rather, before he gives us eternal life, awesome glory, and the power to become a full member of his family, God intends to make absolutely sure that we have gone all out and have totally surrendered our hearts and minds and wills to his way. Brethren, where are we on that continuum? We all are still human. We're all struggling with it. But where are we in the developing the heart and mind and focus of God? And how are we going to be different through using His Spirit and turning up the heat a little bit of His Spirit in our life?
Matthew chapter 13 and verse 40. Going to him every day in prayers really is the starting point. Is the starting point. Seeking God with all of our hearts every morning, just like they tended the lamps, morning and evening, morning and evening, for perpetuity, forever, morning and evening, every day. Didn't miss a day. That's what he told them. How about us? Do we miss a day of tending the fire that is the Holy Spirit in us? Matthew chapter 13 and verse 40. Again, speaking of the future, this this contrast again. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The lake of fire burning up the incorrigible. But notice verse 43, the destiny, the opposite destiny of the righteous. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Interesting even the phrase of Revelation 3. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If we are willing to get on fire right now, to go all out, as Mr. Meredith often exhorts us to do, in a way that maybe we haven't before up until this time. If we are willing to really put God first in our life, we're going to be ready for our destiny. Let's take advantage of the time we have now to grow spiritually, to be fervent, to be zealous, to put to use the Holy Spirit, not just to store it, but to really ignite it and let it change us and move us. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, and we'll conclude with this. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Are we on fire for God? You know, it's not just about jumping up and down and making a lot of noise. It's actually what we do in our private time. When we really put God first, and nobody knows except us and God, the most important person to know. Isaiah 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal or the perfect and holy will of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Brethren, let's use this Pentecost season as we think about the Holy Spirit and as it moves us and as we are filled with it and we continue to ask God to fill us with it, let's not just be a storage container for it. Let's ask God to ignite it in us, to change us, to help us, to grow and overcome. Let's be on fire for God.